You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. When we lived, we lived in Florida, and I guess this, this, I'm reminded of this every time I turn a corner and this kind of thing happens, but there was a spot when we pulled out of our subdivision um, usually on a Sunday morning because of the timing of it, that when you turned onto the main road, immediately you had the sun in your face. I don't know if you've been on a road like that and, or come across that, but you make this turn and the sun is just glaring. and It's like, okay, sunglasses, visors, the whole bed, you can't see anything in front of you. And when we sing a song like that, you're the light of the world. You've got to realize that when we talk about Almighty God, the best thing that we can do is have Him front and center to us. Where everything else is kind of dark around it, where we focus in on Him and we understand, God, you need to be the full, get the full brunt of my attention. And so when, when I'd make that curve and I'd see that sun, it reminded me that I needed to be full on in front of God. And I would say every time that I run across one of those situations like that, it just reminds me of the fact that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all, and that light shining on me is a good thing. Although it exposes things in my life as I wrestle with Scripture and go through all those things, it is a good thing for God's light to shine on me. Because I know at the same time that God pours grace and mercy on me. It is a good thing. And so I want the light of God to shine on me. It's, um, when we look at this scripture this morning, this whole idea of light in darkness comes to, comes to the forefront as we start looking and thinking about the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of those, is one of those stories that we can get caught up in and start looking at all the details. And we have to remember that God is displaying Himself in a world that is dark. And He's still doing that. You remember Nehemiah had a soft heart for his heritage. Um, Charles Wendell, in, in talking about Nehemiah, talks about Nehemiah in light of being a Holocaust baby. That Nehemiah was a son or grandson of parents who lived through a Holocaust. A, a nation had come and taken over Judah, and Nehemiah was the product of that. So whether Nehemiah experienced that firsthand, don't really know that exactly, but we do know this, that the things that happened during the takeover of Judah and all the, the mental, emotional stress of that being taken into exile, all that comes to play in Nehemiah's heart and in Nehemiah's life. So Nehemiah was a product of that. And in this passage or in this book, there are a couple of issues at hand. First is the sovereignty of a nation. And we're in the middle of that kind of discussion now, aren't we, as a nation? Do we build a wall? Do we not build a wall? Do we let people in? Do we not let people in? And, and there's, it's, a very complicated, it's a very complicated situation. 
Because on one hand, we'd say it would be great as, as Christians, we look at Scripture and we say, yeah, let them come in so we can share the gospel with them. And at the, on the other part of that, uh, on the flip side of that coin is, we are a nation that needs to guard and protect our borders or the sovereignty of the nation. At what point does the nation no longer be a nation? And so we have to, we wrestle with those things. And, and I, you can politicize any of it. And I don't really want to get into that this morning because if, if we went around the room, there'd be 75 different opinions in this room about these issues. And, and the more you got into it, the more we'd have to talk about it. And so we'd have to be here till four o'clock and we still wouldn't solve it. But sovereignty of a nation was something that Nehemiah was dealing with. Should Jerusalem be rebuilt? Should the walls be rebuilt and the gates put in place? And Jerusalem or Israel be a sovereign nation amidst all these other nations that surround it? The second thing that, that comes up is the, um, is the marginalization of the church. You see, in Nehemiah's day, and we talked about it a little bit, that when the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire and everybody around them has access to them, that they set the agenda. And so what Nehemiah is doing is he's leading the people to rebuild the wall in, in, this, in trying to pursue some kind of national independence, but also to say God is alive. God is very real, and the nations around that particular city, around that area, need to see an alive God, not a dead God. Because as the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire, all they see is a very weak God that is proclaimed by the Jewish nation. We can be so considered weak as a church, and I'm not talking a local church, I'm talking big church. We can be so thought of as weak because we are marginalized within our society. At what point does society say the church doesn't matter anymore? And so we're not going to listen to your voice. We're not going to listen to your story. We don't even think much of your God. We kind of live in a society like that. And our responsibility as followers of Christ is to follow him with such a passion that people see who God is. They see his power. They see his glory. They see him working in the midst of everything else that's going on around us. Nehemiah was also very passionate. And so as soft as his heart was for the nation and the wall and his heritage, he was also um, pretty brash. He didn't take things very lightly. And so if you flipped over to Nehemiah 13, you would read words like this, and they or ascribed to Nehemiah, it says, In those days I, Nehemiah, saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And as for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. Now here's where it gets interesting, because Nehemiah is one of these guys who would say, Nehemiah has soft, tender heart. He says, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to the sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he likens it to Solomon. 
and his kingdom. And what happened there? So Nehemiah, soft-hearted, ripping people's hair out. Essentially, it says, yeah, I made them bald. That was, that's the translation. So Nehemiah is this, is this dichotomy. Nehemiah is this soft on one hand, but very firm and passionate about what God is about on the other hand. And so he is the, the leader in this. And he desired the people to be set apart in holiness and devotion to God. That's what he desired of them. And so restoration of their identity, of their security, of their right standing in the world through rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, reestablishing the gates. It was a pathway for them to not only understand who God was, but a pathway for them to understand the gospel. That they, as they started adhering to the law and getting to know God again, they would understand their need for forgiveness and their need for salvation and mercy. That, that wouldn't come through the law, but would come through grace through Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah was this guy in the middle of all this. You see, God could have preserved the wall. In the taking over of Judah, he could have preserved it. He could have actually built it back by himself. He didn't need people to build the wall back. You realize that. He put the whole universe together. What he, certainly, he could build a wall. But he chose to use people in the rebuilding. And essentially, the way I see this, this whole book and this part of it, it's an invitation to join God again or to come back to God for a nation. And so Nehemiah leads them to understand. And Nehemiah 3 is one of those places where we start to understand who's involved. Now, we're not going to read Nehemiah 3. And, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to be very honest. There are a ton of names in Nehemiah 3. And I, I like going to the meat market because there's a butcher there. We don't need to butcher it here. And so I'm not going to read Nehemiah 3 and all these names. Just know there's a ton of them, but we're going to get some principles out of Nehemiah 3. And I don't want to gloss over Nehemiah 3 because Nehemiah in this, this section, is important to us. You say, well, why is it important? Well, it's going to show us a couple things. It, because it, like other places where names are listed, First Chronicles 1 and Matthew 1, um, there is a reason that these names are listed. It's a confirmation, first, of the people's commitment to do several things, to rebuild the wall and the gate, to reestablish their heritage as a nation, and to refocus on the work of God among them. But there's also a personal nature that we see in this passage, in this chapter. Personal nature, nature of it because it says in several places where it says that they gathered together and rebuilt the wall across from where their home was, next to their houses. Now why would that be important? When you establish a wall across from you and you see that and you understand why the wall exists, every time you walk out of your front door, you understand that God built that wall and that is there on purpose. And having a part of what God was doing, they did it next to their own homes and next to their own neighbors. Second thing is they did it together. It was not a they need to do it mentality. Have you heard that in the church? I have this idea, but they need to do it. 
No, it was a, we need to do it. It's in front of our house and we're going to get in on it. And so there was a personal nature to the work that was being accomplished. And I want us to see three different approaches to the work very quickly, and we'll move through this. Three different approaches. The first one is diligent and steady. Diligent and steady. Without fanfare, they would do the work adjacent to their homes. There was a personal interest for them, but there was also a corporate interest. Now let me just step aside to, to what's going on here. You know that we, we said not too long ago that we were going to be working over the summer to changing th some things around, that student ministry would move to this campus, children would move around the hallway to another section, and adults would move downstairs. That's going to take some physical labor and some work. It's the only way that that's going to happen. It's not going to happen by some people sitting and going, make it happen. It's, we can't do an I dream a genie kind of thing with this. It's going to take some people that are going to have to get in on the work to make it accomplished. So renovation of the, of the education building, we ought to have a personal interest in that, as well as a corporate interest. And I realize that some of you may not have students or children, but that doesn't cut you out of the corporate interest of this as we look out for the, the bigger picture of what that does for our church family. So, we can be diligent and steady about that work over there over the next couple months, or we can just watch it and see if it happens by us watching. It's going to take some people getting in the middle of it. The second, second way of doing work is a, a zealous way. If you look in verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, After him, Baruch the son of Zabbi, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. There was a zealousness in some of their hearts to accomplish the work, and that actually means to be kindled or to be fiery hot about it. It's going to take some people getting fiery hot about that project down there. There'll be some people that'll need to come and be steady, but there's going to be some people that are going to have to jump in and say, I am passionate about this being accomplished so that we can move on with the work of God here. And so it's going to take some people that are zealous. Um, in verse 27 is another place. After them, the Tekoites or Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. That's a, another section, but that people had already repaired a section of the wall. If you look on your diagram, you will find the name of these folks. I know that's really hard to see. Pull out your magnifying glass or, or sit next to somebody with really good eyes. But there are two places on that wall that are repaired by the same group of people. And what they did is they completed the task before them in front of their spot, in front of their homes. And then they said, what else can we do? And they moved to another section of the wall and worked on it as well and repaired it. They were zealous about the work. The third way of looking at this, or the third approach to the work, are the detractors. Now, if you go back to that same group of people in verse 5, it talks about them. It says, moreover, next to him, and, it, and we'll get to the next two in, a, in just a minute, but moreover, next to him, the Tekoites, that same group that completed one section and moved to another, 
said, made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. It's the only time in this whole chapter that, that there is some kind of opposition to the work of rebuilding the wall and establishing the gates again within the body of the nation. It came from within. Every other place in here, it's Samballad, Tobiah, Tobiah, and they were outside of the nation. They were that outside group putting pressure on, on the people of, of Judah. But here we see their own nobles said, we don't want to have any part of it. So they stood back and they watched. They just didn't participate. I don't know if they were consorting with, with Sam Ballot and Tobiah in, in opposition to the wall. Maybe they had a, let's see what happens with this because this has been tried before. And so maybe they had that kind of mentality. Let's just see what happens. But they were inside the walls that were being reconstructed. And their attitude may be one of those things, and, and I've said it as I've watched somebody work. I could sit here and watch you work all day long. Have you ever done that? See somebody digging a hole, I could sit here and watch you all day long. And maybe they had that mentality. It didn't matter. They just weren't going to be part of rebuilding the wall. They were detractors to what God was doing in the midst of a nation. And I think ultimately it hurt the nation. Now, granted, the, the wall gets rebuilt. We'll find that out in the next couple of chapters. It gets rebuilt in record time. And, and this group even, they were so, the Tekoites were so zealous about getting it done, they didn't even need their nobles. They just did that and did more. The interesting thing is all of us can be in one of these camps. We can just be about our business, doing what God's called us to do. We can be very zealous and passionate, white hot for the work. Or we can sit back and be, just be a detractor. We have that option. All of us can be in that spot. And all of these are within the nation. All of these can be within the church. I want to be really honest. It takes everybody in the church to do the work that the church is called to do. Everybody. I've heard the numbers where you say 20% of the people do 80% of the work and the other 80% of the people do 20% of the work and, and those kind of numbers. But I want to tell you that that is not a biblical ration. That is not a biblical way to approach church. Church should not be a ton of, uh, just a few people do all the work and a ton of other people watch and see what happens. There's a call for all of us who are inside the church to do the work that God has called us to do as a church. The way Romans says, and, and this is Romans 12, verses, starting at verse 3, it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And stay with me with this. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts and differ according to the grace given to us, each, each of us 
is to exercise them accordingly. So if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In Nehemiah chapter 3, there are some places in here, and we look at it and we say, where did all these people come from to build the wall? Were they all masons? Were they all people that could put block together? No. Listen to some of the people that are mentioned. They're goldsmiths. I don't know too many goldsmiths that lay block. Goldsmiths, priests, perfumers. I don't even know what a perfumer does. I guess make perfume, right? I don't know how valuable that is to rebuilding a wall. Maybe it was a deodorant thing. You know, you work, get sweaty, you stink, got perfumers to come alongside. Uh, maybe that was their job to keep everybody where you could hang out close together. But God used a, various, a, a varied group of people to accomplish the reading, rebuilding of that wall. It wasn't just one or two. It wasn't just a certain set or subset of the nation of Israel that went to work on the wall. It was everybody. So there's responsibility. Just as there was there, there's a responsibility for us to do the same thing. And the way this gets played out, the, the rest of that passage, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, in spirit serving the Lord. This is not a time to sit back and say, I'll watch. There really is never a time in the church where you can say, it's okay to sit back and let's watch. It's not what we're called to do. We're called to be diligent about the work that God has called us to do. So, what is your why? Why do you do what you do and when you do it? I think there are some different things. Maybe recognition. I won't do this unless I get credit or unless I'm stroked in some way that makes me feel good. I'm not going to do it. If I don't get recognized to a certain degree by somebody who matters, then I'll just step back and see if anybody notices. Recognition may be one. Power may be another. Seeking leverage within the body of Christ to accomplish something. Essentially, it's putting yourself in the place of God and making yourself an idol to those around you. Third way is maybe control. I get to call the shots. If I'm in control, I'm good. If I don't get to call the shots, if I'm not in control, then I will step back as well. The fourth why is, would be tradition. I know it's not there. Fourth why it would be... I'm a, Add one in the middle between three and four is tradition. We're going to do this. The why is because we've always done it. But there's really only one good answer. For Nehemiah, the good answer was, I do it because it is of God. It's what God has called us to do. It's about glorifying Him and uplifting His reputation and His fame. And any other reason falls short of an appropriate response to God's Word and obedience to God's Word. 
So what motivates or inspires the why? So we have to know what, what gets us to the place of pursuing a why. Now let's say our why is we want to glorify God in all that we do, so how do you get there? How do you get to that spot where you say, I'm all in, I'm ready to do this, and I will take, take acts of obedience and be faithful to the church that God's called me to be? The, the first one is maybe it would take a pep talk for you. Coaches understand this. Tommy would understand this. You've done pep talks, right? To teams. And you've had to do them on uh, when you were facing an opposition that was bigger than you, when you did them with opposition that was smaller, and you've had to do talks after a loss or a win. And they all matter. I, I've done some. And, and you sit there and you, you rack your brain thinking, how am I going to motivate this group of and for, for me, it was young men. How am I going to motivate this group of young men to move beyond what, their, what they think their ability is to play to their potential? And sometimes it, it works, but it works for a temporary season. It works for that time, and you want your words to go beyond that, but a lot of times it is essentially for that game or the next game or for a season. You want some of the words to last for a long time, but pep talks are just one of, those, one of those ways that we discover what motivates or inspires us. The other thing may be a significant project. If somebody dared you to do something, would you do it? I've watched some, and they're crazy dares. I've watched, I've watched people do things, you know, eat certain things, and I won't, I won't do that because we're going getting ready to eat and it may just mess you up. But I've, but I've listened to some of those dares and I've watched people go, yeah, I'll do that. For that amount of money, I'll do that. So maybe a dare of, or the challenge of a significant project motivates you. Maybe it's a movement or a common good. Like, we get in on something that would be good for the environment. Everybody will jump in to clean up alongside the road, and we'll have a lot of people that will go just pick up trash. Common good. Or we jump into the recycling thing, and we're going to be green about everything that we do. We're going to recycle everything. And so that which we throw away into a landfill is like this much, and our recycle bin's overflowing. We wanted to get in on that. It's for a common good. For Nehemiah, it's still God. It's still God, his commands. The life and breath of Nehemiah is God motivating him or inspiring him to move and do the things that he's doing. So what is it for you? What it motivates you? Colossians 3, 15 through 17, I know 317 is one of Scott's favorite verses. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with all psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I think that's what was happening along the wall. In, in some respects, they were beside each other, encouraging one another you got to know that when they were rebuilding that wall that somebody's thumb got smushed. I know that, I don't even know if that's a word, but somebody's thumb got it. 
And somebody else yelled, it's going to be okay. Shake it off. Keep working. This is important. And then it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Everything that we do ought to be motivated by our passion for God, that we draw life and breath from the Savior who brings light to us and grace to us and mercy to us. Let Him motivate us and inspire us. Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's like I'm going to come beside you and help you along so that you don't fall into the trap of sin. So you'll fall into the trap of walking away from God where He doesn't matter anymore. Remember, that's how this nation got to where they were in exile. Before they came back to rebuild the wall, they were in sin and they'd walked away and they'd followed the deceitfulness of their sin and ended up not following God anymore. Nehemiah calls them back and I would say we need to be called back to following God with a passion and being around each other, helping each other to avoid the deceitfulness of sin. I think it's true that we give up too easily. We just fold. It's too hard. It's too hot. It's too difficult. It's because sometimes we are driven for by something that's less than God. We become accustomed to a present condition. I worked at our at the place that we're building yesterday and the day before I'd been out there and I'd worn some boots. And when I was finished, the boots had mud on them. I stuck them in the back of the truck. I thought, well, that's a good place. I'm not putting them on the inside. So I put them in the back, left them there, went inside the house when I got home, didn't think another thing about it. Sitting there on the couch, I hear rain. Oh, that's nice. Went out yesterday. Didn't think of it. I knew they were going to be wet, so I just left them there, put them on the inside of the truck for a little while, and then I pulled them back out and, and came home, got cleaned up, got back in my truck to go somewhere, and I got in the truck and I went, oh man, this, something doesn't smell right. And then I realized, oh, it smells like the shoes. My shoes were right behind the seat, and that the odor of those shoes, I had become nose blind, if you will, to it while I was stinky on my way home. But when I got out there and I was a little bit cleaned up and I went back out there and got in that truck, it became very apparent that I had left something stinky in the truck. And I took them out and moved them somewhere else. We can get very accustomed to that which is around us and be very comfortable in it when we, when we just settle and say that's all there is. God doesn't call us to that's all there is. We're not called to dwell in the accustomed. We're not called to dwell in apathy. We're also not to live in isolation. Cannot do Christianity in isolation. Or even that understanding of this doesn't affect me. So if we don't get something built, if we don't work on the youth area, it doesn't affect me. That attitude is not should not be tolerated. Uh, I wouldn't suggest we go around like Nehemiah and start pulling hair. I'm not sure that's a good idea. 
But I do think we have to have that, that passion that drives us to say, whatever we need to do, let's do it, and I want to be in on the middle of it. The other reason we give up too easily is we don't see being present as important or vital to the church body. And we've said this before. We've talked about it on Sunday morning. Your presence, presence is important. You say, no, it's not. Yeah, it is. Your physical presence is important. You see, the enemy would like you to believe the lie that you could skip out whenever you want to and it doesn't make a difference. But it does make a difference because people notice. You say, nobody notices when I'm gone. Somebody notices when you're gone. They may not say anything, but they notice. They notice when you, when you, whether it's to do something that you say, well, this is of value or, or something that's maybe not of value. Not, not much in the scope of eternity, not much. But people notice when you're gone. And, and I, I want to say that your presence, your presence is an encouragement. Uh, just bluntly, you're in, it's an encouragement to me when you show up. I, if I didn't want anybody to show up and I wanted to preach, I'd do it on Thursday afternoon when nobody is around here. That's easy. And the feedback is interesting if I were to do that on Thursday because it would be me talking to myself. Your presence is an encouragement to me, but it's also an encouragement to the choir, to the praise team. When you participate in worship, and you're singing, and you're smiling, and you're in on it, praise team, choir, those that are leading up here, they get encouraged and strengthened by that. Now, they're not in it for the praise and glory of just being up here or being before you and going, oh, I can sing well. That's not why they're here. They're up here singing because they want to glorify God, but they want to lead you in that. And when you show up to actually do it, it is a, a big encouragement, and it strengthens the body. You're even an encouragement to the person that's sitting next to you. Because then you realize you're not in this alone. You're in it together. See, although it's not about you, you are an important part of the body of Christ. In this passage, and this is kind of how we got here, is to understand the reason or the, the importance of us together is in chapter 3, if you go through from verse 1 through verse 32 of chapter 3, there are 31 times in Nehemiah 3 where these phrases are used. Next to, after him, and after them. It appears 31 times, and I think it's strategic. Strategically, God reminds us that we need each other. We can blow off chapter 3 because we can't pronounce names. You may choose to do that, but it's the parts in between the names here that count. You see, we could take any individual in this room and say, this is what you're to do, and this is what you're to do, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what you are called to do. But it really only makes difference for the kingdom of God when you put a plus sign in between each of those people. When you put a next to or after them or after him. And you say, we're going to do this together because that's what God's called us to do as a church. 
Nehemiah is a, Nehemiah 3 is a strategic part of this because in Nehemiah 4, we're going to learn about some opposition that required the people in, of Nehemiah's tribe to be connected by plus signs all the way through the opposition. So where do you stand? I want us to pray and then I want us to remind I want to remind us of a couple of things before we dismiss and have our and have our time of commitment even before that. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that when we're in the full light of you, you give us a reason to exist. You give us a purpose for living and a reason to do things that we do even together. And so, God, I thank you for Nehemiah 3. I wish the names were easier to pronounce. But, God, I'm thankful that you put the words in between the names that help us to realize how important our responsibility is within the church, within the body of Christ. And so, Father, may we be faithful and diligent to do what we've been called to do, to be present and to be focused and involved, that we may accomplish from this corner what you call us to accomplish. And not for our sake, but for the sake of your name. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The list in Nehemiah 3 reminds us that any gap in the wall, and if you look at the diagram, every single piece of that wall was accomplished. But any gap in that wall would, would indicate a weakness that would be exploited by the enemy. The same is true of church. In our lives, in our church, among the church family, where there are people that decide that they don't need to build, don't need to be part of that, or it's not important that their piece of the wall gets built in a timely fashion, or they decide that I'm going to build my section of the wall different than some other section, and, and they don't join well any weakness within the wall, any gap within that structure is cause for the weakness or, or calls for a weakness and, and allows Satan, allows our enemy, our true enemy, to get in on what, what is happening. And so we can't allow that. We have to be a people that are set apart and set to building the wall without gaps and without conflict, not, at least not bad conflict. We need to rebuild the wall in a way that honors and glorifies Christ and points to Him, to a world that around that wall needs to see. They need to see Him. It, all, it takes the whole body of Christ to maximize efforts to build the wall that displays His glory and His power. Or to build the church that displays His glory and power. Let's be that church. Let's be those people that God would be glorified in all that we do. Would you stand?
question this morning is how, you, how will you respond to God? What will you do in response to His invitation? And maybe it's the invitation to come to Christ as your Savior. And I would say that's first and foremost, if somebody doesn't know Jesus Christ, the invitation is open to you to come to Him. And to say, I want that personal loving relationship with Almighty God. The second thing would be, maybe there's an area of uneasiness that, where you kind of feel like God's Spirit has spoken to you and you say, I need to respond. And maybe it's to come and pray at the front or pray where you're at or pray with somebody else in the room and say, I need to be that person that is diligent and zealous about the work of God from here so that God would be glorified, so that everybody around would see who he is. So as God leads you this morning, as, as the song is playing, you be responsive and obedient to God this morning. Don't put it off, but be obedient to him. for providing mercy for us. God, the condition of this people in this room, apart from your mercy and apart from your grace, 
is a place of destitution. God is a place of tragedy, a place of damnation. And yet by your mercy and your grace, you called us to yourself. You've given us a standard to which, of which we can raise because we fall under the banner of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And God, may that, may that be the banner that is seen by those that don't know you. God, we're in a world that would want to marginalize the group of people that are in this room. God, may we be the people that stand up and say, not so. Not us. We want to proclaim Jesus among you, and we want to be that strong body that says, God, we are in this all the way, and whatever you call us to do, we're going to do it. God, help us to be that, that group of people that is so set on you that it be unmistakable that we belong to you as children. May your name shine through us even more than our own name does. God, continue to work in this place to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.